Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Well, hello, Nisa. Hey, Lisa. How's it going? Good. Today we have a special guest for me because I've only met him once, but someone I think you know very well, right, Nisa? Why don't you um, introduce him for us? I am so happy to introduce to you one of my um, flight medic partners. I've been flying with him the my entire flight career as we literally interviewed and were hired for the job on the exact same day. Wow. He began his career in uh, one of the local counties in the fire department nearly or more than 30 years ago. Um, how many months to retirement? Uh, 36. 36. And we regularly are updated with the countdown. <laughs> we're, we're lucky at work that we get the regular so like a, countdown. Like, a, like the opposite of an advent calendar and an yeah. exodus calendar. Yeah. Uh, over 30 years ago, began his career as a firefighter EMT, worked up through the ranks all the way to paramedic and then lieutenant, shift captain, battalion chap- captain, and he is now the assistant chief of fire over operations for this local county. He has an associate's degree from Clayton State and a bachelor's and master's degree in emergency services management from Columbia Southern University. He's got Numerous certifications, fire instructor level two, fire officer level four, apparatus operator, aerial apparatus operator, holds paramedic license in all of the southeastern states and Kansas, just randomly. (laughs) Um, He's a nationally registered paramedic and is dual certified as a flight paramedic and a critical care paramedic. Um, And as I said, he's worked for the same company as I have for exactly the same amount of time as I have. And um, so I'm happy to introduce you to my uh, co-worker and good friend, Captain or Chief, sorry, Chief David Peace. I I was corrected when I went to visit him (laughs) at work when I asked for David and they said, you mean Chief Peace. Well, Chief Peace. (laughs) Chief Peace, welcome to the Keyword Welcome. This is pretty cool. Yeah, it is so great to have you. I hear about you all the time. Uh, Whenever Nisa gives me her recap of what happened on her shift the night before, I get to hear about all your adventures. So it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you in person. Thanks. Uh, And I'll just put a plug in for Nisa because she's really fun to fly with because she has like this miraculous ability to assess and intervene with critical patients that is unbelievable. And so it's it's really a joy to watch. And uh, most of the time, I just try to stay out of the way. <laughs> I love hearing this. <laughs> I get to hear Nisa's perspective all the time. And of course, I think she's a rock star. I thought she was a rock star for the last 30 years. But getting to hear the same thing reinforced by somebody who works with her professionally is very <laughs> rewarding. Thanks for that, David. When when we fly together, he is, well, and when we're on the ground together, he is the king of dad jokes <laughs> and bad puns. And he is the guy that you want when you have a nasty airway. He uh, doesn't miss. So, um, Chief, we're going to start off the way we do every episode. So when you are on shift, either at the fire department or on flight, do you say the uh, keyword? word? Never. No, that's that's terrible. <laughs> terrible idea. 
Okay, that's great to know. Uh, you know, Nisa, we should probably start keeping score. I think we're at a solid 99%. Most people say that they won't say the keyword on shift, but every once in a while we get that subversive guest who likes to, you know, invoke the gods by uh, saying the keyword on shift and seeing if all help actually does break loose. Yeah, it's the rare individual. Yep, it is. Yeah. All right. So what are we talking about today? I know that what you are going to introduce us to is something that you've been using in the pre-hospital environment a lot that you think will have a lot of value actually in the hospital environment. So uh, let's get to it. Take it away. Recently, David and I did a whole lot of research and we actually both devoured a book. And he's going to start off by telling us a story of how this whole thing was born and it will illustrate this idea that we want to bring to emergency nurses. Yeah, it's a fascinating story because it really revolutionized the world of aviation, but the implications to medicine are huge. And so I think once you hear the story, you'll begin to see how the the dots are connected. So way back in 1935, the military had this flight competition and they were trying to determine which new long-range bomber they were going to purchase for Uncle Sam. And so like the crowd favorite and the expected winner was this uh, Boeing prototype. It was called the Model 299, and it was supposed to just crush the competition. Um, So it was October 30th, 1935, and they were at Wright's Airfield over in Dayton, Ohio. And you can kind of picture the crowd of Army brass and Boeing executives. They're all there to sort of witness this this test, which is supposed to be like a shoe-in for the contract. So the, the Boeing prototype with its massive wingspan and four huge engines uh, accelerated down the runway and smoothly climbed up. And when it hit 300 feet, it suddenly stalled and just turned on its wing and just crashed right in front of the entire crowd and exploded uh, into flames. The pilot, who was Major Ployer Hill, and one other crew member were killed in the crash. Miraculously, three other crew members did survive. But the investigation into the cause revealed the most ridiculous thing, that a very basic, simple pilot error had caused this crash. He did not, the pilot had failed to release the lock on elevator and rudder controls. This is like the equivalent of forgetting to take your parking brake off before you back your car out of the driveway. This is, this is not an advanced maneuver. It's a very basic step in the process. So what they realized was that, that this prototype Boeing had developed while it brought this incredible increase in capability, it also brought with it this increased complexity to operate. And so basically people had created something highly capable, but it was so complicated that they introduced human error into the equation of its operation, and they didn't realize it. After this crash, you know, one of the headlines in a, in a newspaper was that the plane was, quote, too much airplane for anyone to fly. So the test pilots began to try to figure out a way of how they could overcome this problem. And they immediately ruled out um, more training and experience because Major Hill 
was like the most trained and the most experienced test pilot they had with the most hours on the plane. So they basically couldn't train someone and give someone more experience than he had. So they sort of pushed that off to the side as a, as a way to solve this problem. And then as they came up with a solution to uh, mitigate this human error, the genius of their solution was in its incredible humility and simplicity. Uh, and they created those first few simple checklists uh, that would literally fit on a three by five card that that contained basic but critical steps for things like takeoff, flight and landing. You know, the things like take the airplane's version of the parking brake off before you lift. So because the number of tasks that it took to fly this complicated machine had grown so quickly from, you know, just three decades earlier when the Wright brothers first lifted off the ground. Um, they, they needed these checklists to mitigate human error from the process. It was, there were just too many steps for one person to remember perfectly consistently every time. So they put these three checklists into operation and immediately this this Boeing prototype flew almost 2 million miles without another incident. And the military, because of its incredible safety record after that, uh, would eventually purchase well over 10,000 of these airplanes, which we now call the B-17 Flying Fortress. And, you know, the simple checklist in hand, they were able to harness all of the incredible capabilities of this machine, and it really had a direct impact on the outcome of World War II. So when you think about that story and you see how the world of aviation benefits from the well-used proper design checklist, you can see the need for it in the world of medicine. You know, we're capable of reducing morbidity and mortality in patients whose improvement and survival would be unimaginable 50 years ago. But sort of just like the B-17, a lot of the things we do in medicine are too much airplane for one person to fly uh, from memory. So we, we simply can't accomplish everything we need to do within the complexity of medicine only by memory without introducing human error into the equation. And so the checklist is the antidote for those slices of the pie where, where things are critically happening, uh, but they're so complicated, you can, you can make a mistake. Interesting. So this isn't about a person's skill. This is about providing a skilled person with a tool to cognitively offload items that have to be done, but might be forgotten in the employment of their clinical skills. Right. And that, that's exactly it with the checklist. And, you know, a lot of the complicated and um, high risk things that we do in medicine, th there could be hundreds or even a thousand things that that clinician knows and brings to bear on the assessment and treatment of that patient. The checklist is about plucking out those 
five, six, seven, or ten things out of those thousand things that we know well that are those killer items that if we make that simple human error and leave one thing out of those thousand steps, it could be a disaster for the patient. Um, we don't we don't need the checklist to you know be our medical education on a piece of paper. It's it's just those critical items that we cannot forget. Uh, I, I love that. It's such an elegant and simple solution to a complicated problem. So and and one of the things that we know is that in aviation there's the expectation is that there's no error and if there is error people die medicine is the same way there's not much room for error and if there is people die and yet those both of those industries are being carried out by humans who are imperfect and so this is uh one of the as you stated elegant solutions to how we can put those two things together and it's not the first time that we've stolen things or ideas from the aviation industry. You know, simulation has grown over the last couple of decades in the medical field exponentially. Every hospital, every large hospital, every school of nursing, every paramedicine program has a sim lab. They're getting more and more sophisticated, more and more complex, more and more realistic. Those are safe spaces for um, students and continuing learners to practice their craft without in injuring someone and being able to learn new skills, new um, procedures, new equipment safely. We stole that straight from aviation. Uh, and this is the same thing. We're looking to aviation. How do they mitigate their risks? Checklists are used in every step of aviation now. And we are just barely beginning to scratch the surface in the uh, application for it in the medical world. Time for my pop culture comment. Of course, literally every television show, every movie where someone has to fly the plane, land the plane, they break out checklists. There's checklists for everything. I, I thought it was just a trope, but uh, but no, it's legit. Absolutely. Okay, so what kind of checklists are we talking about here? I know they're checklists for the hospital environment, but what do you mean specifically? So there are categories of checklists. There are procedural checklists, which ER nurses will be familiar with. Um, Mostly like, for example, the insertion of a central line. It's very important that in a routine or semi-routine insertion of a central line, a checklist is used. That's to guarantee um, sterility so that the central line doesn't become infected. So ER nurses will be familiar with running through the checklist of all the, the pieces that need to be put in place to ensure that it is inserted in a sterile manner even though it's being done in the ER environment. So that's a procedural checklist. That's not what we're talking about today. Uh, there's also preparation checklists. That's something like what would be used in the OR, that all the steps to um, leading up to the first cut in the uh, operation have been done. Those can be very, very lengthy. Again, not what we're talking about today, but very important for safety. Problem solving checklists would be a lot of the ones that are used in flight. So uh, all of a sudden your right engine goes out. Well, that's a problem we need to solve. So flip to your book of checklists. What happens when one of our engine goes out? Here's the steps that you need to take. Not exactly what we're talking about today either. But prevention is what is the category of um, checklists that we're talking about. So when you have a scenario that comes up frequently in your nursing or paramedicine practice, um, you can use this checklist to go down it so that this is a high-risk procedure, low volume or high-risk, high volume. 
you follow this checklist to ensure that everything that's possible to be done properly for this patient is done. And David, what would you say would be the most important example that we use all the time? I would say the RSI checklist is is the most critical, um, followed by, believe it or not, the pre-launch checklist where we ensure that we have brought all of our equipment with us. Uh, for example, would say, uh, did you remember to pack the blood and plasma in the cooler? So you can be the greatest clinical genius on planet Earth in the back of an ambulance and determine the need to administer blood better than anyone else. But if you forgot and left it back at the base, you haven't done your patient any good. And so uh, using that pre-launch checklist to overcome the logistics of medicine and then the RSI checklist to really um, improve the clinical outcome of that patient in the back of the ambulance. We, we have other ancillary smaller ones, but those are the two heavy hitters that have huge low-hanging fruit. Do both these checklists specify the order in which these steps have to be done, or is it merely that all of these steps have to be done? The pre-launch checklist is basically, uh, I don't think the order that we go down that checklist is relevant at all. It's basically uh, when, when we're about 30 seconds away from the pilot pulling up on the collective and leaving planet Earth, we'll take a look at the pre-launch checklist and just go down the list to make sure that we haven't forgotten anything that we've already done. Is the shoreline retracted and pulled back from the helicopter? Um, seat belts on, are the door jams clear, uh, you know, jump kit, monitor, airway, blood in the blood cooler, vent, monitor, plenty of locks. Um, so that order doesn't matter. Um, the RSI checklist that we use has a little bit more of a clinical pathway to it. It'll start off with what are the things that are going to get us in trouble, uh, difficult airway predictors. And then it moves into, do you have all of your equipment ready? And then it ends with, um, are we prepared for what happens after we perform the RSI? So that is more of a, has a flow to it that, that the order matters. Okay, cool. So the ER equivalent, ER nursing equivalent to the pre-launch checklist would be the checklist that you do when you first come on shift. So if you're assigned as the trauma nurse, when you go in and check the trauma bay for all of the equipment, is all the equipment in place, It's that would be similar to the pre-launch checklist. The time to do that is not when the trauma comes rolling in. That's not the time to realize that you don't have an adult BVM available because they used it on the last shift. The time to do it is at the very beginning of your shift when you're doing that, like it would be equivalent to the pre-launch. So Pre-shift, you're going in there and making sure that you have everything ready for whatever might roll in the door. You don't want to be caught when that trauma comes in. Um, and, and really, any nurse assigned to any rooms in the ER should be doing that, ensuring that your room is properly stocked, suction is in place, things are in working order so that when your patient comes rolling in the door, that would be the ER nurse equivalent of the pre-launch checklist. Um, one of the things that has like developed organically on the Q Word podcast is um, our fascination with 
airways. And so we've done many, many episodes on that. We've done the heaven episode, heaven criteria. We've done episode on pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation. We also talked about the salad technique. We've talked about dialing in your induction and paralytic agents in a way that would be safe for your patients. All of these things are items on your RSI checklist or sometimes multiple items that are addressed multiple times in a stepwise manner. Uh, and so, yeah, these are these are really key. So you, you have this depth of knowledge about each one of those things. And then your RSI checklist reminds you to consider every single one of those and make sure for this particular patient that's in front of you right now, it has been addressed appropriately. Okay, so if you're an ER nurse, when do you use a checklist? We mentioned that some of the things would be for high risk, high volume, and the highest risk, highest volume thing that ER nurses do all the time would be RSI, I would say. You would also really want to have checklists for things that are high risk but low volume, so things that you see very, very rarely. So some examples would be uh, a precept delivery. So if mom is rolling through the door, she doesn't have time to make it up to OB, or maybe your hospital doesn't have OB and you're about to deliver a baby. That's not something you do frequently. You would probably like to have a checklist for that, especially if this is going to be a preterm or a breech baby or things don't go silky smooth. Some trauma centers may insert in the ER external ventricular drains. We would do that occasionally in our level one trauma center. We were not neuro ICU nurses. It was not something that we were doing enough to be competent in it or, or like very, you know, um, comfortable with it. This is a very high risk procedure where they're dr literally drilling a hole in someone's skull. This is something that you would really like to have a checklist on. These are things that are time sensitive. You don't um, maybe necessarily have time to get a neuro ICU nurse to come down or an OB nurse to come down. Another thing that you can use a checklist for would be if your department has some room for improvement on certain things. You could use a, you could develop your own checklist for that. So institutional history of high error rates, you could develop a checklist for that. That would be customized for your department. Things like mass casualty events, those are things that are very rare and on occasion happen. You would have a checklist for that. Adult and pediatric cardiac arrest are a good a good need for a checklist, um, and that can even be in the form of a printed ACLS algorithm. It doesn't have to be one that you create specifically for every conceivable event, but just having the humility to even pull out the ACLS uh, algorithm and confirm that you haven't forgotten anything and you've considered all your H's and T's for possible causes. Um, those are the kind of things that, you know, we do a lot of cardiac arrest and so we, we feel so comfortable doing it that we, uh, not maliciously, but we just don't consider the need for a checklist in those situations. Yeah, the ACLS and PALS algorithms, especially on those printed cards, are beautiful examples of checklists. And I am glad that you brought that up about not about having the humility about pulling them out, opening them up and taking a look at them, because people sometimes have the mistaken notion that that makes it look like you're a rookie or um, that you don't know your protocols. And as, as we, as you mentioned, Major Plyer Hill was the expert on that aircraft, and yet he still made a small, simple mistake that cost people lives. 
Can you explain, David, why it is so important not to memorize a checklist, why that's the very opposite idea of what a checklist is about? Yeah, so in order to most effectively remove or reduce the human error from the equation of complexity, you need the checklist to um, be a cue to make sure that you have not forgotten anything. And so if you memorize the checklist and you don't look at it, you haven't mitigated the possibility of human error. The same human can forget something on the checklist if, they're mem if they memorize it and they don't have it in front of them. You, you simply don't remove human error from the equation if you don't have the checklist in front of you and go down it systematically. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So tell me, um, how is it that you can motivate your colleagues, your uh, fellow medics and nurses um, to work this into their practice? I know that you're already in the weeds when you're dealing with a difficult patient and it's a high acuity situation. What do you do, David, in your practice? We can ask Nisa too, um, how to best motivate your colleagues to um, adopt the humility uh, to stop what they're doing and take out a checklist if it's something that they're not accustomed to doing already. That's really simple. And the very first thing that has to happen for me is I have to humble myself and actually use the checklist and lead by example. And I can't possibly expect clinicians that, that I'm shepherding and caring for and mentoring to do something that I'm not willing to do or I'm not humble enough to do. So for me, that's kind of a first step. And then I think something that's really important, and we can get into some of the ingredients of great checklist chili maybe later, is the checklist needs to be a high quality checklist. And there are components that can make a checklist horrible and people are just not gonna wanna use it. But if the checklist is well designed with the right components, um, there can be an obvious incentive by the clinician. Basically, once they give it a try, the, the light bulb sort of comes on and they see how effective it can be. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what the ingredients of a perfect checklist chili are. Uh, before that, uh, Nisa, what, what about your perspective? Yeah, I, I really agree with that last point is that when you model it and then you see what a difference it can make because people are reminded of things, things are caught, things are put into place or done for a particular patient because based on the checklist and you see what a safety net it can be in your practice, people buy in. I also 100% agree that it's got to be a strong, robust checklist and that a bad checklist will kill it in the water immediately. Okay, well give us an example of a robust checklist as opposed to a bad checklist. Well, the very first thing is it should be short. If you've ever pulled out a checklist with 47 items on it, what you've actually taken out and looked at is a how-to manual. And so a checklist has to be short and only contain those killer items that are going to harm your patient if you forget about them. And so often, um, not to knock like, um, you know, risk, risk benefit analysis groups and all of that. But a lot of times they'll identify an error and then they'll create a checklist that is so long that you could take 
someone off the street and give it to them and they could innovate someone because it contains every single imaginable step. And it, it's just, there's too much there. There's too much information and it, and people are not going to use it. Yeah, the, the research shows that it should be roughly five to seven items, nine at the very most, that that is what our human brains can, what we can absorb, what we need, five to nine at the most bullet points. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, so then there has to be situations where a checklist simply isn't viable because you won't be able to reduce that complexity to just a few steps. Is there any wisdom in a sequence of checklists uh, to take you through components of a complicated process at a time, or does that just basically become another type of instruction manual? Yeah, I think um, a sequence of checklist is not basically the flavor of what what you would want to uh, create or accomplish um, in the development of an elegant checklist. The the people that are performing these tasks are experts in the field. I mean, they're, they're good at what they do. Uh, we're just trying to identify those five to seven things that, you know, if the parking brake is for, is forgotten about, the plane's going to crash. In an RSI, there are hundreds of things that you're doing in just five or 10 minutes time. But, you know, a good checklist is only going to weed out those handful of items that are going to create a problem for the patient. So in, in the aviation example, one of the things that they said was they they studied emerg- in aviation or in-flight emergencies, and they noted that 100% of the time, someone notified the ground that an emergency was happening. So notify ground does not need to be on your checklist. If it's happening 100% of the time, that item does not belong there. It's a waste of a good item. So something like place the patient on the monitor or everyone in the room don your gloves. That happens, I mean, 100% of the time. If those two items aren't happening, we've got bigger problems. So something like that does not belong on your checklist, right? It needs to be what what David calls the killer items. And it's important to note that what might be on the RSI checklist for my hospital might be different than what's on the RSI checklist for your hospital based on your resources, your policy procedures, your training, and also what's happening 99% of the time at your house versus what's happening 99% of the time at my house. And so they are customizable and it is an iterative process and a living document. So what's happening now In a year, now we have a new piece of equipment. Now we have a new piece of research or science that needs to be folded in. Or we have something that we got really good at and we can move it off the checklist and put something more important in place. So the end user needs to be a part of that living, breathing document, that iterative process. And that's also how you get buy-in. Somebody in a boardroom who hasn't touched a patient in a very long time is creating the checklist. We We have in all likelihood, uh, an unusable checklist. It needs to be someone who is doing the job, using the checklist, saying, this is not helpful, this is too long, this is unreadable at three in the morning. You know, I was going to ask how you keep the information fresh in these checklists, because I know that there's always things shifting in the medical field. Um, What is your process, so for getting this updated information into people's hands, 
uh, it's one thing to update a checklist, but then it's another thing to get people to swap out that information with the information that they've been used to carrying around. What kind of recommendations do you have for hospitals in how to most effectively keep this information up to date and keep that up to date information in a place where people know to get it regularly? So one of the things that we recommend is that at the bottom of your checklist, you put the email address or the phone number or some kind of contact information for the person who owns this checklist. Uh, that way, when an end user has a recommendation or a suggestion, they know who to contact. Also, next to that should be the date of when it was created so that you know, do you have the most recent one and how old is it and does it need to be looked at? Um, one of the future states of checklists does include potentially digital things. So something that might be on an app, something that might be able to be pulled up on the computer or pulled through into your electronic medical record. That's not something that's happening in this brand of checklist yet. Um, and there is something to be said for having something that you are holding in your hand in an emergent scenario like this. Uh, but, but you bring up a good point that logistics is a problem where you're continuing to have to print things out and laminate them and get the most, you know, do we have the most recent copy? Does everyone have a copy of it? Or have we hung it on all of our crash cards? How do we make sure, you know, and, and so that is an important task to make sure that it gets done and, and kept up to date. So clearly this is one of the challenges inherent in trying to roll out checklists in your hospital setting. Uh, certainly not a big enough challenge, I think, to get in the way of even trying it. But what other limitations or challenges do you see in trying to roll out this new process, this new procedure, this idea in your medical practice? Well, as I've stated multiple times, uh, ego and pride is really a huge barrier to using the checklist. As Nisa stated earlier, uh, the perception is if you pull out that checklist, you do not know how to perform this procedure. And that's just something that has to be overcome with culture and education within that organization. And sort of a part of that is just the complacency of the more experienced people who have done it thousands of times. Okay. Maybe I'm not a super arrogant clinician, but I, I mean, I've done this for 33 years. I just don't think I need a checklist. And the, you know, the argument is that's not untrue. You know, you have done it dozens and dozens and dozens of times, but you've never done it on this patient dozens and dozens of dozens of times. And the beauty of being a critical care clinician is that you are customizing your care to this patient who's in front of you today, right now in these circumstances. And for that, you need the checklist. Also, it's three in the morning, you're bleary eyed. You've never maybe done it with this provider or this group of folks. So every single RSI is different. It doesn't matter if you've done it a thousand times. Uh, it still warrants a checklist. You will also have people who say it's too rigid. You know, it's I, I have to follow this prescribed, like you said, that they, they go in a certain order. This is too rigid. This is too inflexible. I can't take this cookie cutter RSI and put it on every single patient. And and that is not the case either. David, what do you say to people who say this is too rigid, this is too inflexible? It would be if it were a terrible checklist that was sort of the 1,000-step how-to guide. But because it's only containing those items which cannot be left out, 
um, it doesn't really matter which direction your RSI uh, path is going, um, it's going to fit a wide variety of patients. Um, so if it's done right and it's kept short and, uh, you know, only, only those critical steps, then it really is a flexible document. It, it, does, it does expand itself to a wide variety of cases. You know, I thought of one other thing that um, people immediately react to when they hear about having to use a checklist. Uh, one of the complaints I hear a lot is that it's just an increased workload. It's just one more thing I have to do. And um, they don't necessarily connect the dots between the benefit and clinical outcome for the patient. So I think the best way to mitigate that increased workload complaint is to, uh, when you introduce a checklist, if you do some scenario-based education and you practice doing procedures that people have been doing for years, but you, you practice using the new checklist as part of that so that it can, it can be developed into their habit and routine before they have an actual patient in front of them that might be a way to um, kind of get some buy-in on that. Oh, this is just one more thing risk management wants me to do. Okay, so you're saying basically using the checklist becomes a part of what you train them to do when you train them to do the procedure, right? Right. The, um, they, they should be just as practiced at using the checklist as they are at performing the procedure when when the time comes to use it on a real patient, so they feel comfortable with it. Of course, that makes perfect sense. Uh, one of the things that we see from our friends in the operating room where they have really bought into the checklist um, culture is uh, there's been a decrease in surgical complications, 35%, uh, deaths, 47%, uh, central line-associated bloodstream infections decreased by 11%, so sometimes people will discount a solution because it's just so simple, like a, a three by five card, right? This is just a, a piece of paper with five or seven bullet points on it. But if I were to tell you that there's a medication out there that decreased surgical complications by 35%, every hospital would be stocking it. Every CEO would be budgeting money for it. But this is a simple checklist. You know, this reminds me of one of our earlier episodes on, on cleanliness, uh, cootie cleaning, I think it was like three or four, uh, where we learned about the history of cleanliness in hospitals and how the simple act of washing hands uh, you know, back in the 1800s or pre-Victorian days, whatever, led to an immediate uh, drop in mortality rates in uh, maternity wards and stuff. So it seems as if this paradigm shift of just using a checklist has the potential had the same kind of impact on really increasing the quality of healthcare. And really, it's a it's a you mentioned it earlier. It is it's for cognitive offload. It is a, a safety net for you and for your patient. Um, oftentimes, when you're distracted or you're tired or you're overwhelmed because the shift is crazy or this this particular scenario that you're in right now is crazy, you're not necessarily aware of that. You're not necessarily aware that fatigue has set in or distraction has set in. 
the checklist is your safety net for that. So, so um, it, it's really for you as a clinician to um, protect you cognitively. Yeah, amazing. Um, one important thing that we also learned from the literature is, uh, so the Canadian government was so impressed by the numbers that checklists were showing that they made it compulsory for all of their operating rooms that they would be using the checklist. And it was a miserable failure. They did not see the results that everyone else was seeing when they made it a law and made it absolutely compulsory. So it is something that you need to get buy-in from, that you need to allow people to make it flexible, make it dynamic, make it their own, make it customizable. Forcing people to do it does not get the results that you want. And a checklist is not the end-all be-all. It doesn't solve every problem. What do you mean? So as David said, it is not a set of instructions. It's not a recipe for how to do something. If you don't already have the basic education or knowledge, a checklist is not going to help you with that. It also does not prevent failures of commission. It only prevents failures of omission. So in other words, if you drop the wrong dose of a medication, a checklist is not going to stop you from giving it. It's not going to do the med math for you. Um, it's not going to prevent you from putting an ET tube in the esophagus versus the trachea. <clears throat> That's something that your skills will provide for you and your all of your safety double checks. Um, and it's not going to magically impart training or skill to you. Um, so, so it does have limitations as far as that goes. It's not there to teach you what to do. It's there to remind you what to do. Yes, that's right. What do you think the um, future of checklists is going to look like? Um, are, is everybody going to have iPads? Uh, are there going to be apps you can pull up on your phone? Uh, is this going to continue to be a laminated card situation? How do you see them working their way into the hospitals in like practical means? Right. One of the, one of the things that I think is very exciting about the future use of checklist are the patient um, involved or patient used checklist. Um, I just read a book about uh, a gentleman who had to have brain surgery. And in the book, he tells the story of the surgeon coming in right as they're entering the operating room. And the surgeon gives the patient a checklist of things to go down, such as what side, point to what side of the head we're going to do the surgery on today. And then the surgeon would take a Sharpie and, you know, put an X on, on that side of the patient's head. And it's, um, it's just a way to involve the patient in in any of those critical processes to make sure that, that none of those items are missed. We mentioned digital checklists, checklists potentially, uh, or AI smart checklists. Another thing that I find to be very interesting, which is not necessarily literally in the emergency room or, either, or the pre-flight um, or pre-hospital world, but uh, checklists have applications in other aspects as well. So we mentioned the aviation industry. We've talked about the medical industry and how the OR is really, really taking advantage of them. The construction industry uses it as well. Um, but, you know, you could use the checklist in your personal life as well. So um, ER nurses in particular or emergency medical professionals are not known for work-life balance, being masters of work-life balance. We don't always have that on lock. Um, a checklist is one way that you could potentially 
bring that into focus. Okay, wait. Now I need to she interject She says, here. having <laughs> used them. I see what's happening here. There's this, Nisa, for as long as I've known you, for over 30 years, I have seen you <laughs> use checklists as the, 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 the guiding light of your life. You write checklists for everything. You you show them off. You'll, you'll pick them up on and show them on a video call and wave them <laughs> in our face. So I sense that there's an ulterior motive here, folks. This is a higher agenda she's trying to push. This isn't just about medical practice. David, reveal, are you a, a to-do oh, list gosh, maker? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I make a list for everything. <laughs> yeah, I already know. So, yeah, so like work, work-life balance checklist, that's a possibility, future state, I don't know. Um <laughs> David, could you talk a little bit about the book that we're basing a lot of this information on? Yeah, the Checklist Manifesto. Uh, oh, it's so good. You know, if you don't know or don't care about checklist, this is the book for you. <laughs> if you think checklists are the cat's pajamas, this book will give you tons more technical information. There's stuff in there about how to do the checklist. Um, if you hate checklists, this book will win you over. And it's not just uh, like a really good technical read. It's just so well written that, uh, I mean, maybe I'm a bigger nerd than Nisa after all. <laughs> but once I started the checklist manifesto, I couldn't put it down. It was it was very well written. This episode of the q and, and podcast a... is brought to you by the checklist manifesto. <laughs> no, no, there's no sponsorship deal here at all. Just shout out to the author. Dr. Atul Gawande. Um, and I will say in a in a beautiful meta twist, if you are interested in writing a checklist for your department, whether it's an RSI checklist or otherwise, in his appendix, he has a checklist for checklists. <laughs> so here is a checklist to find out whether or not your checklist is well written. Is that the most beautiful thing you have ever it is seen very meta. in your life? <laughs> Love that. So... Um, so if you are starting at scratch and you want to create to, to start, I would recommend the RSI checklist and you have no idea where to begin. There are a million examples online, many of them good. Many of them do not follow the recommended, um, the evidence-based research. So we'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any more points we should know, David? Yeah, we've, we've mentioned several times that in order to improve the clinical outcome, the checklist has to have these great ingredients in it uh, for what I call delicious checklist chili. And right, um, the chili. One of my, you know, people have a tendency to think of a checklist as its only job is to reduce errors of omission, and those errors of omission are only tasks. But it can also help you reduce an omission of a clinical thought process. And so here's, here's an example that I use. If you have an RSI checklist, it may say, it, it may list four or five pieces of equipment um, that you don't want to forget to set out and have prepared. In other words, don't forget to do this task. But what if you replace that whole section with a simple question? What is your plan if you're not able to place the ET tube? How will you alternatively ventilate this patient? Okay, 
So that question, when it's used in the checklist, has turned my brain on, and now I have a plan for what I'm going to do if I'm not able to place the ET tube, so, you know, it's not an emergency on my part. And you don't want a checklist that helps you lay all the proper pieces of equipment out, but you're still not um, thinking through those critical killer clinical pathways. And so a great checklist turns your brain on by asking really good questions and can cover a multitude of smaller tasks. I see. So what you're saying is that a good question can launch a cascade thought process, almost an internal checklist, like uh, the answer to this question helps you sort of stack up the next steps that you'd have to do uh, if something goes wrong. Exactly. When when something happens in medicine, like you're not able to place an ET tube, uh, a question like that can almost give the clinician permission ahead of time to more quickly move to the appropriate plan B. And there's a lot less of a delay in that transition to an appropriate plan B uh, because, you know, the clinician has thought through that process two or three minutes ahead of time. So beautiful checklists, five to seven, maybe nine killer items, turn the clinician's brain on, asking good questions, framing it for this patient that's in front of you right now today. There's also evidence that shows us exactly what visually, what it should look like. So when you're in these high um, intensity scenarios with adrenaline flowing, uh, what visually makes it easy and clear for us to read. And the, the evidence shows that it needs to be black ink, that it shouldn't be full of colors or pictures. Skip the hospital logo. That doesn't need to be on there. Don't fool with borders. Black ink, upper and lower case like we would be reading in a book. Nothing fancy. That it should be sans serif fonts. Um, no comic sans, no absolutely not. bats, <laughs> no papyrus. Nope. Keep it visually clear and simple. Got it. So that when you are in these wicked scenarios, your eyes visually can just move right through them and you're not taking any extra brain power to try to sift through all the fancy colors and symbols and logos and nonsense. There's evidence that shows that's part of a beautiful, good checklist. Fascinating. Seriously, it's the simpler, the better, not just the content, but the presentation. Um, so, David, in closing, there are times when it is appropriate to abandon a checklist. Can you talk about when you develop a culture that is a pro checklist culture? Um, what would it look like and, and when would it be appropriate to abandon the checklist? That's a really good question. And. I immediately am thinking of the flight that we went on where we got in the back of an ambulance and the patient had devastating trauma to the face and the airway was completely unprotected. They were aspirating blood actively directly into the airway. And so you can think of many clinical situations where you walk in an instantaneous intervention is required in order to save the patient's life. 
And so when we jumped in the back of the ambulance, it was an immediate taking action to suction and clear the airway. You and I were placing the ET tube and securing that airway in an emergent fashion. It would have been clinically inappropriate to go down the RSI checklist prior to us securing that type of emergent airway. Once the tube is secured though, we could take 30 seconds, go down the list quickly to make sure that you know, we hadn't forgotten something and needed to go back and mitigate whatever that problem was. But I mean, there are situations that are so critical and time sensitive that you just have to intervene immediately and use the checklist on the backside. Yeah. So a crash airway, uh, not an appropriate time to stop and go through a five to seven point checklist. Um, as you said, once the airway is secure and that has been stabilized, you can pick back up in the checklist at that point and continue through whatever killer items are left. Um, but there are times when it would not be appropriate. And that's the part where we say it's, it is customizable and flexible and, and sometimes is not appropriate. You know, it occurred to me as you were telling that story, putting that situation into the hospital and putting it in an ER situation. One other benefit in in the hospital setting to using an RSI checklist, you guys are both going to be shocked to know that there's a bit of a hierarchy in an emergency department between nursing and respiratory and providers, physicians and PAs and so forth. No, say it so. (laughs) And that some of them are not amenable to suggestions or ideas from people who are not considered on the same hierarchical level. Mm-hmm. Those ideas are antiquated and they are in many ways detrimental to patient care. And a checklist is one very safe way that nursing staff, respiratory staff can make suggestions to someone in a way that is non-threatening, that is standardized, evidence-based, um, and might be much better received in those kind of scenarios. Is everyone picking up yep, what yep. I'm laying down? Absolutely. It's a backup. It's a reinforcement. It's a something you can point to to verify your actions. Um, hi, I'm just going about the checklist. Uh, did, did you see that on the checklist? Uh, a doctor, a doctor, uh, this is on the checklist. That's right. It just gives you another opportunity to right. use a tool at your disposal to underscore a best practice. It's elegant, perfect, right. simple. Right. Yeah, you're basically letting the checklist be the bad guy in that scenario. Yeah, be the evidence-based research that... <laughs> I'm sold. Uh, all, all hail checklists. Yeah, we love them. Yeah, well, we love them. I'm surprised in no way, Nisa, that uh, this is the career you ended up in, considering you found a way to make your <laughs> personal passion for checklists part of your uh, professional life. And, well, thank you, David. Thanks for coming and joining us today and uh, sharing your wisdom on how to take this very important uh, tool that you've been using in the pre-hospital environment and helping us show how we can apply it in the hospital environment. From the pre-hospital environment, currently in a condo closet yeah. at the beach. This is how dedicated this yeah. friend is that he would didn't tell us that he was going to be on vacation mm-hmm. at the beach. 
while when we had scheduled this recording. But you literally locked in a closet. Re- right now. Retreated, retreated to a closet <laughs> when he could be with his toes in the sand at the beach. It. So we're gonna let you go and do that. When you think of vacation, you think I should be on a computer having people ask me a bunch of questions about work. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what of I course. think of vacation. Well, is. we are so happy that we were able <laughs> to bring what... this experience to you, David. <laughs> yeah, we're very happy. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for your time and expertise. And expertise. Folks, uh, thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to our website, the keywordpodcast.com. And you can email us at the keyword podcast at gmail.com. And of course, we'd love it if you would rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you happen to be using these days. Until next time, friends. Till the next time. Bye. Thanks, Thanks Chief. Chief. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.